This is the intro song for the Never Daily podcast that we do called The Hugs Podcast. Let's start by taking a deep breath of something, preferably air. And as the emotional, pensive guitar music comes in, let all of your worries go. Take another deep breath and prepare yourself for this episode. It might suck. Or... It might free your earballs to soar with the beagles. This is the Hugs Podcast. Welcome to another Never Daily edition of the Hugs Podcast, where we bring three stories that are amazing. To, uh, to kick things off here, we're going to go in, in sequential order from alphabetical. So Jack Kent, <laughs> the operator. <laughs> All right, good. Hey, that actually worked. I was kind of hoping it wouldn't because it would be funny, but it actually Right is right, right? J K H I J K T. Oh, yeah. Well done. L M N O. Yeah, T comes. L M N O T. Right. Yeah, comes after K. Oh boy. Well, to so to kick things off, a lot of I I've, just so you guys know, we've gotten a lot of awards. Coupled with some of those awards are sounds like you have nothing to say at the beginning of the podcast, and you're just kind of galumphing along until you tell Jack to start his story. Mm. And I thought, you know, there's one of two things I could do here. I could completely disagree with it. We could continue doing exactly what we've been doing. Or I could change it and have something prepared to say at the beginning of the show. So, Jack, are you ready to tell your story? (laughs) Yeah. Good work. Okay. Hey, have you guys ever done... Uh, something heroic. I'll start with the operator. The operator. Have you ever done something heroic in your life? You know what? I'll, and I'll make it easier. Have you ever seen something heroic, or have you have you done something yourself that's heroic? For somebody who who seems to always have something to say, I, I struggle with this, and I'm just gonna have to say no. I don't think I've no. ever done anything. Uh, the only thing I could come to, and this is a total roundabout stretch, is. I guess I'm hoping that by the way I live my life that like it's, you know, it ends up being one of those tapestries like the 80-year-old man family picture surrounded by like, you know, 700 grandkids and it's like, wow. So like I guess at this point I haven't saved a a burning tree from a car or, you know, anything like that. But uh, but I'm, I'm hoping for kind of the grand tapestry of that the 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 preponderance of my life being something that people could bet, look back on and say it was more or less a heroic feat but i'd say it's a heroic answer how about <laughs> how about you there kent hold on you want you want people to look back on your entire life yeah. as heroic but here's the, you can't answer the question have you done yeah. something heroic and you were no spring chicken. <laughs> Running out of time there. Yeah. I've been looking every time I'm in the car. You might want to get to work, join a fire department. 
I, I don't. Because <laughs> at best, they're going to be like, well, you know, the back end was full yeah. of heroic. He's going to be a lifeguard when he's in his 60s, just trying to pull one out. <laughs> yeah. Knocking kids in the pool and grab just one. You know, you know how it goes in our society, though. You do one amazing thing at some point in your life, and it whitewashes the rest of your your life. Everybody thinks you're amazing, you know. Or you do one bad. Yeah, you don't want to use that too too yeah. soon. I want to have a pretty yeah. ho hum life, and then do one thing right at the end, and you know, save a kitten from cancer, or, you uh, know, something something crazy. One time, I was with my ex wife, and we were on Piney Green Road outside of Camp Lejeune, and uh, we were driving. And we came came around this bend in a curve there. We weren't at work or anything. This was just on our way home. And whenever we came around the bend, I remember seeing an SUV. And it was upside down in the road, but it was hovering like three foot off the ground. (laughs) And then it was – and the reason I tell – is because the reason I remember it like that is because it took my brain a second – to register what exactly was going on because it was like somebody hit play and then it started flipping. Yeah. But in reality, we had turned the bend while this thing was in mid-flip, right? And it took my brain. My brain was just super confused for like a split second and then it caught up with what was actually happening. So it was like that pause scene in the Dukes of Hazard where the general leaves mid-air and it's like, well... How the Duke boy is going to get out of this bucket of syrup straight by me. <laughs> exactly. Right, that part. And then you catch up and it's like, keeps going. Or like the X-Files where it's just hovering in the woods. Yes. Or even, I'll do you one better. You remember the scene, their favorite thing to do in that movie 300 during the fight scenes was like, speed up for a minute, slow down. Speed up for a minute, slow down. It was like that. It was like, it was still moving, but it was like super slow. And and it was because my brain was like, something is off here. That is not supposed to be facing that way. And then they hit play, and then it kept flipping. It probably flipped, I don't know, four times, four or five times. Dang. And then it came uh, to us to a rest upside down in the ditch. So I came to a halt. My, my uh, ex-wife jumped out of the vehicle. And it was like something took control. Another car pulled up, and I ran up, and I was like, you, call 911. <laughs> And then I turned around and started running towards the vehicle. And by the time I looked, my wife had taken a rock and broke the side window out of the expo- of the, the vehicle that had flipped. Nice. And, had, and I could hear a baby crying inside the wreckage. And I, next thing I see is her little feet kicking out from the window. She went in there and unbuckled the baby from its car seat and pulled it out. While I ran around the side and opened the, the – or tried to open the driver's side door – but I couldn't, and I didn't need to because the window was broke. So I got on my stomach, and I couldn't find the driver. The driver what? was gone. Hence the wreck. Well, I started looking up and down the uh, ditch line and in the woods, but I never saw her get thrown out. So I was, like, super confused. And then I, I ended up getting in, in it, and she had been thrown into the back cargo area where the third row seating would normally be if it had third row seating and like the cargo area where you would put groceries. Mm. And uh and then I pulled her out and as we I was I was holding her and as I was running um the vehicle exploded behind us no. and I dove. <laughs> that didn't happen. No, the vehicle never exploded. <laughs> but uh yeah, we <laughs> I got her out of there and laid her down on the road. The vehicle never exploded, but it was the horn was beeping the entire time which was very irritating. 
And but I do remember that not it was a young lady. She was probably 21, 22, I would guess. Her dad showed up. Obviously, she was badly hurt. She she had many broken bones. She was cut up. Ambulance showed up, and about the time the ambulance got there, her dad rolled up on a Harley. And I remember the first thing he said was, I just bought her that oh my uh, like two weeks ago. And I got really mad because I had seen how bad the wreck was. And I was like, you should probably be glad that she's not dead and your grandchild isn't dead. And then I thought we were going to fight <laughs> on the side of the road. And it was that was me. That was that was my heroic moment. The only one I've ever had in my whole life. Thank you. And I hope that they look back at my life, you know, and they say he led a heroic life because I got started at a young age. Yeah, you did. You did. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get into it. I can't uh, really top. Okay. I, I cut off there, <clears throat> and uh, Kent was talking about his ex-wife bashing a baby's head in with a yeah. rock or something. Yeah. No, you got it. Sounds... This pretty much sums it up. Okay. Yeah. Very heroic. Real quick, I'll say, like, I, I saved a couple of kids with the Heimlich maneuver when I worked at group homes. Uh, they, someone else would have saved it. It wasn't me. It's just, it was like a regular thing. You'd think it would be a heroic thing to save a kid who's choking with the Heimlich maneuver, but the kids that I work with would choke all the time. So I was Heimlich maneuvering like it was physiotherapy. You know, it, it would just happen. Is it because of, like, their physiology that they would choke all the time? Yeah. You would have to puree their food. And, uh, no. So they weren't just clumsy. <laughs> they were clumsy. Yeah, they were clumsy. <laughs> I'd, I'd say that's part of what they were. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, no, they would uh, they would choke quite a bit. Like, you, you would turn your head, and they would grab, like, a, a piece of food that they wouldn't be able to get. Like, a, a big thing with kids with the severe type of disabilities that I was working with, they'll eat anything. Mm. Um, so once in a while they'll be like, oh, you know, Dave's choking. And they just come up and hoop, hoop, hoop. Okay, Dave's alive still. There you go. They'd reach for the food because, like, you're not looking. They're not supposed to have it. And so they want to hide it as quickly as possible. So they'd put way too much in their mouth, maybe, or something like that. That's part of it. Okay. But some of the kids actually had problems with their tracheas. They've, they had had tubes put in them for breathing tubes, things like that. Oh, yeah. And uh, they're obsessed with food. These kids, I mean, they feel like they can never get it up. To be honest with you, the reason why with the, the particular kid I'm talking about is that he grew up in a home where they didn't feed him right. Oh, On top of having these disabilities, geez. a lot of the kids that I work with, they were mistreated and they were taking out of, taken out of homes where they found them in a room with feces all over the place ah. and they weren't being fed properly. So, so they had the mindset of scrounging uh, for food and they'll grab food at any given opportunity. I work with, I think, two or three, three kids two that I definitely can think about right now, but I think three kids at least that were like that. And yeah, yeah, they would uh, scarf it down or not supposed to be eating something that large with uh, their medical condition and choke. So so anyways, I would often use the Heimlich maneuver to, to get one of these kids to, to keep on living. So that would be considered heroic to most people. But for me and for the people I work with, it was just, uh, it was like clipping toenails. Yeah, just daily thing, huh? Jeez. Okay, Kent, you got a story? Uh, okay, I'm going to get into the story now. I had another one, but I, I, I'm, I'm going to take up too much time here. I'm excited. I saw an old, I'll, I'll make it quick. I saw an old lady in her bathrobe, her nightgown, in a staircase leading up to the top of an apartment building. I lived on the 18th floor, and I was coming up, coming up the, running up the staircase because the elevator was always broken. So I'm running up. I'm about, I think it was the 14th floor, and she's out there going, Monica? Oh, no. Jerry? She's watching Friends. Yeah, and I come up and like, hey, you're right. She's like, Cherry. I'm like, no, no. What are you? <laughs> like, what's what's happening here? Are you a ghost? <laughs> what are you? <laughs> so I had to go through the whole floor, knocking on doors. This thing belong to you? Like, what the hell is going on? Is this a ghost? There's somebody here, right? <laughs> and uh, nobody, nobody knew who it was. And I just, I, 
You see yeah. her, don't you? <laughs> she's, she's, she's for and you real, hear right? the lawnmower, right? Yeah. You guys hear the lawnmower, right? You hear the lawnmower. <laughs> or the trains. Yeah. 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 These three things. Was this during your drug days? <laughs> oh, I was so fucked Swear. Fucked up. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so you were really <clears throat> questioned. I was. I was. There, there was a reason why I was in the stairwell. Let's say that too. Other than I made up the elevator was broken. So, so like <laughs> I go to all of these doors, and finally I, I'm like, I can't. I can't do this all day. Like I gotta get this lady water. So I bring her back to like my house, my apartment. I feed her a little bit. She doesn't eat anything, but I give her some water. I pictured you bringing her a bowl of water, and like <laughs> we smoke a couple cigarettes together. She doesn't smoke, but she does now. I knock on the door of the teacher that lived a couple of doors down. She was super cool. And uh, she's like, oh, my God, we got to figure this out. So we, we walked to almost every single apartment from our floor, the 18th down to the 12th, and we finally ended up finding the people. That, and when we did find them, the, the girl, her daughter, I guess, was like, get in here. St- oh, hell's wrong with you? Yeah. Where were you? And the teacher goes, hey, this kid just spent his whole afternoon trying to find out where this place is. Are you going to thank him or something? And she goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah thanks. And then shuts the door on us. And we're like, oh. Wow. God, that's horrible. Anyways, I'll get into my story, which will be a lot more uplifting than the two I just told right there. <laughs> okay. I'm excited. Heroic acts, they happen every day. And for the most part, either because they aren't caught on camera or those involved just kind of shake their heads then continue on with their lives. The acts, they go largely unrecognized. I've witnessed a man grab the back of a teenager's shirt to stop him from being hit by a car and be looked at like he did something odd. Like, why'd you just grab that kid? The teen himself not recognizing the favor, just continuing across the street, looking back like, that was weird. Heroic acts often go unrecognized because the danger averted is averted. It passes in that instant of intervention. And if nothing happened, well then, hey, yeah, I guess all that really went down was a man grabbed the scruff of a teenager's shirt on the side of the street for a second. So that was weird. We've all had that moment where something completely unexpected almost maims or kills us. I once used olive oil to pop popcorn, and the oil combusted into a bluish smoke, then into flames. My immediate reaction was to pick up the pot and douse the surprise inferno with water. I almost burned the kitchen down, the smoke almost knocked me out, and I had a small child in a high chair behind me in a tiny house that easily could have went up in flames in an instant if we'd uh, had enough money to buy curtains. Sometimes I feel like when I'm telling these stories, I'm just a comedian on stage <laughs> with the jokes not landing because you guys can't talk, you know? Uh, yeah, the crickets do get distracting. <laughs> like, I've noticed that. I feel that when I tell my stories, too. I feel like I'm covered in crickets. I have to look at your guys' faces for verbal yeah. or for, like, nonverbal confirmation. That's funny, right? <laughs> I turn on a type <laughs> A switch in my head, and I do. I say, these guys are just so mesmerized by what I'm saying. I'm just so awesome. And then I just keep talking. That's how what I do. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to get back into it then. All right, so now I'm not saying I was a hero in that instance that I, you know, didn't light my house on fire. I was a buffoon who almost killed myself and my child by putting weld-worthy heat to olive oil while making popcorn. Also, who knew water could make a fire worse? Who knew except for everybody that's passed through third grade? Just, you're right, though. Who knew? (laughs) I was looking for the laugh track there, yeah. Probably every single person listening. And I thought I knew that uh, water on a grease fire equaled disaster myself, but (laughs) in that moment, I didn't. 
if I could go back, I'd calmly put the lid on the pot and snuff the flame out. But instead, I flailed around like Mrs. Doubtfire, making every mistake possible that could have led to me being engulfed in greasy flame, then probably trying to pick my son up and take him out of the house while I'm on fire. I probably would have done that before I thought to stop, drop, and roll. My point is, is that these things happen fast. Accidents happen in an instant. Stephen King says that we all have our own personal patrol boy out there, waiting for the right set of circumstances to step in and take us out. Failing to replace the vegetable oil last Tuesday could be the key to your doom. Disaster is waiting around every corner for you to mix the red ingredients together and unleash it. And when it comes, often your only hope is for a hero to be close by. Someone who doesn't hesitate to act on your behalf. It's always a great treat to learn something new about someone you thought you had all figured out. There's a guy we all know very well that once spotted a three-year-old child jump into a lake when nobody else seemed to notice. He sprang into action, jumping in and recovering the child who was drowning. He returned the shivering boy to his parents, who looked at him like he just unnecessarily put his hands on their kid. Like, why are you holding my kid? This man, who again, we all know intimately, he's instantly recognizable, a household name, probably one of the most famous human beings of all time, never gets credit for the fact that he sprang to action at every given opportunity to thwart the patrol boy. Also to be the patrol boy, but I'll get to that. A couple years after saving the child from the sneaky depths of Green Lake, our unsung hero chased down a purse snatcher in a dimly lit mall parking lot and held the thief down until security arrived, returning the purse to the woman it had been snatched from. 34 bucks still inside. He made the paper for that one. Between the years of 1970 and 1973, one of the most famous people in the history of the world would find or put themselves in the right place at the right time to at least twice be a hero. And nobody remembers it. It's difficult for some people to wrap their heads around the fact that a man like Ted Bundy was capable of heroism. It doesn't compute. They babble on and Reddit forums saying things like, oh, well, what the hell happened to him to change his path, unquote? And the answer is simple. One thing a psychopath has no trouble accomplishing is the act of acting. Nothing changed. Ted was just a person who was primed to act. Also, his sense of fear was a lot duller than most. And, of course, he loved the attention it's not like he was a great guy diligently on the lookout for children to save or villainy to thwart one day then slaying women along the most story killing trail in history the next it's almost certain the reason Ted was in Seattle's notorious Northgate Mall parking lot when the uh, thwarted that uh, purse robbery was because he was stalking prey he'd used the lot in the future a lot that serves as a hospital as well as a mall and was prime stalking grounds for a budding serial killer The opportunity for heroism was unexpected, and he literally jumped on it because he could, because he was capable of it, because he had what it took to be a hero. Of course, he would be climbing in through a basement apartment window months later to uh, commit his first confirmed murder, but we've all heard those stories before. The tan Volkswagen bug, the fake cast, the trail of bodies. Hi, my name's Ted. The trail of gas receipts linking Ted to the dump sites. Bunny was OCD about his gas tank. Running out of gas would be disastrous for a killer on the road. And more often than not, luck is the result of preparation meeting opportunity. Every hero would probably agree with that, as well as every successful serial killer. Say what you will about Ted Bundy, but it can't be denied that he was a man of action. There wasn't much hesitation, and the most infamous serial killer of all time's makeup. Hugs, everybody. And that's... A terrible story.
Well, I think it's just very sad that that all we know about Ted is the bad stuff. I know, right? That's what I'm saying. You know, you, you can save 100 people, but it seems like if you just kill 27. 134. Then that's all you're ever remembered for. It's a damn shame. And In today's climate, there is one thing that Ted Bundy did that many would see as worse than serial killing. You know this, right? He was a conservative? Yes. <laughs> he actually worked <laughs> for the local Republican Party. And yeah. we all know, so he, he was a Nazi. Uh, he was racist. Uh, you know, all the things. The Democrats had Gacy. They had Gacy. <laughs> yeah. I take Ted every time. I take Ted all day. Yeah. Yep. Well, thanks for listening, guys. Anyways, um, not much to break down there. I liked it. I really, I did like it. I'll add some laugh track. Please. Especially when you drop the bomb that it's Ted Bundy, I'm going to put a long laugh track. It'll be fun. <laughs> Wait, did I fool you guys? I was worried. I didn't think that I got there quick enough. Did I fool you, Sam? You did. Yeah, yeah. And I've I've Good. watched a bunch of stuff on, you know, I've, I think we've all soaked up stuff on uh, Ted, but no, yeah, you threw me off. How about you, Kent? Did I get you? I, I did not see that coming. No. Okay, good. I did not see that. Coming. At first, when you good. said he was not recognized for a lot of, you know, the, the kids he saved and everything, I thought, Jesus, but. Um, <laughs> what are we getting into? What? So I was like, <laughs> this is Jack. I knew it was going to be bad. <laughs> yeah. Jack, to me, is like Edgar Allan Poe and Jim Gaffigan had a, had, had a baby. Hot Ravens. Thank you, man. Thank you. Thank, thanks, thanks to both of you guys. It's like being told a story by a crackhead. <laughs> it, it, it or is. a crackhead. <laughs> yeah. When you live your life in the just slums, that the way that he lived for so long, everything is going to be negative. These are the stories we told. Yeah, these are the stories yeah. we told to brighten up each other's days. You know? No matter how hard. Yeah. That's it. Imagine those days. All of his Christmas presents were <laughs> just repainted versions of last year, and he was constantly like, Mom... Why did you paint my underwear? We'll get to that because I think the Kent's about to ask a question that we had to think deeply on uh, today. Yeah. Why did you paint my underwear? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, on that question, we'll, we'll shimmy right into my little bit okay. here. Hey, uh, hey, Op, on underwear, what's the poorest you've ever been in your life? Like, what was rock bottom poor? Oh, like monetarily poor or spiritually poor? Like, whichever one you want to go with. Uh, for entertainment purposes, we'll go monetarily. Okay. <laughs> I know, spiritually poor can be pretty entertaining. But no, okay, let's see. Monetarily poor. I had just put down my fifth business that I owned. Um, and that sounds like a cool thing, but all of them are dead. So, you know, there's that. No business is currently alive. So I just put down my fifth business. I had gotten a divorce and I could not for the life of me find employment uh, and and I'm a terrible employee so my first thing out of the gates is always consult you know rebrand companies rebuild that was my thing as I was a brand development specialist and I for the life of me it was probably a year couldn't put two things together it was so terrible so hard. I actually had my first panic attack during that because my rent was coming due. I was I was living by myself and I had Sam 2.0 at the time. He was six and I had him like every other weekend or something. You know, it was the throes of a very fresh divorce. 
And I'm living in this like small house that was built in, I think it was 1901. And I couldn't pay rent. I was like, what's next? You know, where do I go after this? Like, I'm out of a house. I have a six year. It was terrible. I woke up one night. I couldn't catch my breath. And I thought I was, I thought I was going to die. So monetarily that, yeah, that would have been the time. 2012. Oh, what, what, when was that? 2012. 2012. Yeah. And you're on your way of sinking your sixth business. Yeah, right. I, you know, we <laughs> almost did. I, you know, I was trying really hard. Jack and I got together and we're like, how can we ruin this one? And we're like, I got an idea. <laughs> we tried. We did. But, it, you know, this we, this seems to be the unsinkable. It is. You know, if you Michael Jordan said that he failed over and over and over again, and that's why he succeeded. Yeah, but Michael Jordan mm-hmm. also didn't know how just to say he had fallen. He always said he felled. And so people think it's a success story, but he was just talking about being clumsy. Oh, just... Yeah, big feet. Exactly. Yeah, he's so. seven foot. Yeah. In reality, he's, not he's, seven foot. he's poor. And how tall is how, how tall is Michael Jordan? Six six nine, six, six eight. eight. Yeah. Ah, that's seven foot. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why Kent got out of construction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that three inches is a big deal if you're talking to a contractor. It is. It is. Why do all of his houses look like Tim Burton built them? And a girlfriend. <laughs> And a girlfriend. <laughs> it's a really big deal when you're talking to a what's going to be a one-night stand. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. You get that nightstand wrong, and it's like hovering way above the side of your bed, right? <laughs> it's a freaking operator, man. Oh. This guy. What about you, Jack? I'm I'm really excited to hear this, because I know you live... My mom has told me when we were kids, it was as bad at times as the Salvation Army would, would drop the turkey off. Right for like Christmas or whatever, but then but then there was times where I was a little older and the janitor lived next door, so all of the clothes from the high school that were left over in the lockers, they she would bring home and let us sort through, and we'd pick them for ourselves. And then I'd be out in the community hanging out with uh, you know Larry Ferguson's volleyball shirt on my back, and him saying, "Hey, that's my shirt," oh, and I'm like, "No, man. it's not." Oh. Is your last name Ferguson? Were you number seventeen? Like, oh. <laughs> That's your shirt. For sure, that's your shirt. So that that kind of thing, whatever. I don't really want to talk about all that stuff because there there were good times and bad times. But the poorest that I ever really felt where it was absolutely my doing or something that I needed to be able to fix and I couldn't fix it was when I first met my girl, we moved to this apartment building. It was a one-bedroom apartment above a library. It turns out it was beyond our means. It was like the cheapest place we could find. And I've been working in this group home for 10 years, and they never gave me a raise. I was making $14 an hour forever. And they gave me, I had a, really, a lot of responsibility. I'm saving kids' lives, and they're smacking friggin' hot dogs out of their throats, like I told you earlier, right? I'm seeing really terrible things and doing all this stuff. I'm the lead, I'm the lead guy, and uh, they never upped my pay. But the area I lived in, so my mom bought our house for like 30 grand. It's now worth almost a million dollars. I think it's worth a million dollars in this neighborhood because it's outside of Toronto, Canada, Ontario. Toronto really blew up. It it always had been blown up, but like all these people are buying all the property outside of Toronto. So the housing prices were going up and the rental prices were going up, but my pay never went up. And uh, I went from paying $800 a month rent and I was clearing $1,800 a month, clearing $1,800 a month. I went from $800 rent to like $1,200 for rent. And then cell phones came in. Everybody's got a cell phone all of a sudden, and you got cell phone bills. I'm driving my car. It's a Honda. I bought it for 500 bucks. 
and the tire falls off, the ball joint breaks, and I friggin' almost die with, with my girl in the car. She's going to school at this time, by the way, so she's not working, right? I uh, go home. Her dad actually picks us up, and uh, I go and I steal a bike. I steal a bike that's beside the apartment building because I want to go get my stuff out of the car, and the front wheel of the bike breaks. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so I'm out there in the middle of nowhere trying to – I'm walking to my car. I just broke this stolen bike. I'm going to get my crap and put it in a garbage bag, and I'm walking back, and I know I can't pay the rent. My hydro is going to get cut off. I've been stealing frozen food from the group home, like bags of milk and uh, pork and things like that for her to make for our dinner. We, we're embarrassed. We don't want to tell anybody. We're thinking about going to the Salvation Army and getting food again. I won't do that. We're in a spot where the guy's going to cut off our hydro. You know, we're, we're, we're hungry. Plus, I'm an alcoholic, right? Like, I got a drink, dude, to kind of get through it. So, so there's like a bunch of um, – we're dead in the water. So my thought – I remember clearly thinking, like, I got to rob a bank. Oh, man. Naturally. You know, like, I got to rob a liquor store. Naturally. <laughs> of course. Yeah. And thankfully, my, uh, my girl was like, I'm just going to ask my dad – and he came and he talked to us and he was like, this is your situation. Listen, come live in our basement, get your feet up underneath you. You won't got to pay me rent for a few months and we'll figure it out. And I remember thinking like, wow, stupid. Help. He helped me. <laughs> Should have robbed the bank. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but that, that was the poorest I've ever been. And it was one of the first times someone actually that kind of like, like, you know, helped. Every, everything went well from there. But anyways, that's my story. <clears throat> I think uh, for, for us, it was... In 2014, after I got out of the military, I didn't have anything lined up. My wife was six months pregnant, and we got an apartment in the ghetto of Richmond. And it was a little bitty one-bathroom, two-bedroom apartment. And uh, I was going to school full-time, and she was – like I said, she was six months pregnant. So, And her job, she had to be on her feet all day, so she couldn't work. I was going to school full-time and working at the jail as a corrections officer – part-time and uh, not a lot of money there not a lot of money to be mad and then I was also going to school full-time and in this place every time you took a shower uh, the water would pour out of the fixture in the kitchen the light fixture up so you, the shower was upstairs so you had to like yell you'd be like I'm gonna take a shower turn the lights off in the kitchen oh my gosh <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, it we didn't have anything because I, I didn't get out of the military with anything. Um, we didn't have any furniture. It was like there was no decorations on the walls. Uh, it was just a bare-bones par- apartment in the ghetto. I remember when the time came for my daughter to be born, my first daughter, the hospital provided her meals. We didn't have, I didn't have money to go get her something to eat. So when the hospital would give her meals, I would just eat her leftovers uh, from the, the hospital food. And we did that for three days. Uh and I was so stoked because the food was good, I thought, because we were, like, starving to death. And so she would eat as much as she could. She needed it way more than I did. And then just whatever she didn't eat, I would eat the leftover hospital food because uh, we didn't even have money for, like, a you know a cheeseburger from McDonald's or anything. And then, fortunately, we, we worked our way out of that. So I like how these stories are ending, you know, <laughs> like for you right there. Yeah, yeah, and then we yeah. we figured it out. It was terrible for a little while longer, and then we kind of came out of it eventually. It was bad there for about two years. Pretty pretty rough two years. But we got over it. My daughter, my oldest daughter, doesn't even remember a time when she didn't have anything. Same with my kids, too, for sure. Yeah, mine don't. Mine, mine. Uh, I believe the phrase the other day from my son was, 
it's only 200 bucks, Dad. I was like, oh my gosh, yeah. what have I created? Oh, what if he'd said that to 2012, Sam? <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. Yeah, our <laughs> operator, 2012 <laughs> operator. <laughs> Damn, both of us. Yeah, <laughs> right. It reminds me of something I heard a while back. It was uh, somebody asking somebody on stage a question. They're like, remember, remember the last time you felt like, I don't know how, I don't know how I'm going to get through the day. I don't know how I'm going to do that. And the person was like, yeah, I, I I, that was probably last week. I think I had one of those last week. He's like, "Yeah." <laughs> and you remember before that, the time before that, where you're like, "I don't think I can. I don't think I'm going to make it. I don't think I can get through this." And his point was, we can't. We often find ourselves, you know, regardless of our status, really. But you know, we could be flushed fi- financially, but stress is over overwhelming or something. We we constantly kind of lose faith in our own ability to to persevere. I think, right? It's funny how every single time we do a hugs, we haven't got to Kent's story yet, but we will in a second. They kind of tie in because in in my situation that I talked about, um, like sometimes you need like someone to help you out, right? Like I really was up against the wall in, in that situation. I, I didn't know what I, I was really think I was going to rob a bank. Like I was, go, I was planning. I was going to rob somebody. Like, I mean, I was going to do something. To have have people around you, or you, people will surprise you. Like the most unlikely people, like maybe someone that you work with is like, "Hey, like, are you doing all right? Like, do you need an extra?" Like my my husband, you know, he's working. I'm kind of doing this as a second job. I noticed that you're kind of struggling. I overheard a conversation, and they throw you a couple hundred bucks or give you a car. Uh, that Honda I was driving basically was given to me because of the situation I was in. Uh, there's a lot of people out there who who won't help other people because they think like pull up your bootstraps and you know figure it out, but it's important to have people out there who are eyeballing the situation and seeing people who are, you know, up against the wall and, and give them that little boost if they if they deserve it. Covertly is the best way to do it too. Not for like your own benefit because it's embarrassing to them too to help them out. That's the type of person I hope to be in the future if I could ever become wealthy in some way. And I've said it before. I don't know how you guys feel about it, but just to help people like little lifts because all of us at some point needed just a little boost. And we would figure it out eventually, but you could figure it a lot quicker and have a better uh, faith in humanity by being helped out in the process too and have a better attitude going forward, I think, as well. I'll be a little bit cynical for a second with that. I saw a meme literally last night. I'm on my phone right before bed, Instagram. I saw I saw just one of those dumb, you know, it's like a sunset and then text on top of it and it says something you're supposed to, you know, find intriguing or meaningful. But this one actually was interesting. It said, be the, be the person you needed when you were young. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, that's, that's cool. I hit an immediate fork in, in the road in my head because I was like, okay. And I think back on the really hard times in my life and how would I have fared if, for example, I had a windfall? Like if somebody gave me 10 grand and I'm at X point in my life when I needed money, was I, was I in a position to, to use 10 grand wisely? Or would 10 grand have just fallen through my fingers? And I think that's a question we don't ask a lot when we're giving money to people uh, in society is mm-hmm. – like think think about somebody you know that mismanages money and then and the, and then they're like hey did you get your fourteen hundred dollar check and they're like yeah and they're oh yeah you're like what'd you do and they're like this Absolutely. person mismanages money but they tell you I put it in savings bought a tiger <laughs> I bought a yeah. tiger right but if they said I put it in <laughs> savings you'd be like really 
you 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 put it in safe. Most people, just because you get more money, we just it doesn't change our behavior. We just do more of what we're used to doing. Yeah, and so. It was interesting. I I hit that fork in the road like, okay, be the best person I needed when I was younger. I think a wise person would have meted me out a portion of $10,000, but know that he's going to play the long game with Mm me over over a year or something because I would have mismanaged $10,000 at that very moment. So wisdom kind of came into it. I'm like, okay, I wouldn't just let myself win the lottery. You know what I mean? I, I would I would be like, hey. I absolutely know what you mean. I got to say, <clears throat> if I could say on that, uh, sorry, Ken, for kind of hijacking before you're, you're coming in here. But the, the, type of, the type of help that I'm talking about isn't yeah. like clearing all their debts and, and helping them out, although I, it did sound like that the way that I was saying it, because I agree. I mean, a lot of people, you give them money. I know people, you give them $50,000, they'll tell you that it'll fix their yeah. life. They'll just become a cokehead. I remember, you guys are saying this, but I remember that the first time that I started making mm-hmm. money off TCK, the first thing I yeah. bought, even though you know we were finally, was a piece of the Apollo 11. <laughs> so, <laughs> I was expecting you to say Tiger, but you bought part of Apollo 11. Okay. All right, genuinely, <laughs> like that's that's a true story. That's a piece awesome, of, <laughs> I know you did. I, I could show it to you. Yeah, oh man, I, I gave a pretty I good know. price for it. That's good. <laughs> we had bills. <laughs> you deserved it. And <laughs> what I, what I'm what I'm actually really talking about is I ha- I had my aunt my aunt Kate who I'm really thinking about and I'm thinking about um a father of a friend of mine who helped me out as well where it was like I see this particular problem like you don't have a car. If this kid had a car, he, he's buying um, fake bus tickets. He's probably going to get arrested for fraud. <laughs> like I was buying, I was, you know, I was selling fake bus tickets. And, uh, you know, he's, he's a real mess. I think if I help this kid in this particular way and I set up a payment plan for him to pay me back, there's no interest, but I mean, I, I get him into it. He gave me $3,000, get the car, and here's the payment plan. And we look at your structure of how you, you your uh, money is coming in and everything else. And we set... We set that. And he kind of taught me how to save and saved me at, at the same time. His nickname was Shoes, if you're listening. Shout out to Shoes. <laughs> you know, if it's a really, like, targeted effort rather than, like, here. I agree, Sam. Or, God damn it. <laughs> I agree, the operator. Isn't that like the the embodiment of the phrase, give a man a fish, you'll feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish, you'll feed him for the yes. rest of his life. Yeah. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you, Ken. That's exactly what I'm trying to say, and everybody knew that. Give a man a ten thousand dollars, and he'll buy a tiger. Feed a man a tiger. Uh, you want? To, yeah. yeah. I'm still trying to learn how to fish. <laughs> be honest. I'm still trying to teach people not to light olive oil on fire. <laughs> but I think we can all agree. Uh, with that being said, that we're in really good places now. Things are. Things are things are are are, are good for all three of us now, and we're no longer in those dark periods. Just to end. In this little part on a hugs. <laughs> sure. I mean, Jack is... But anyways, from... <laughs> I'm calling this story From Riches to Rags. It's going to revolve around, uh, around a man by the name of Max Millitzer. And he was born in 1946 in Schenectady, New York, to a lower-class family. Is that near... Is that near Schenectady? How, what, how, what, did I, what did I say? Schenectady? Well, I just was learning. Maybe it's next to Schenectady. I didn't know if... Schenectady. He was born in 1946 in Schenectady, yeah. New York. Nailed it. To a lower class family. So he, they didn't have a lot of money. 
didn't have a lot of money. He had one brother who was two years older than him named Morris and one sister who was two years older than him named Beatrice. And that's a terrible name. That's probably maybe, that is an awful name, Beatrice. Now, their father, David Malitzer, worked as a conductor for the old New York Central Railroad. And that'll come into play a little bit later. But before we carry on, I want to say that the details of, of Max Malitzer's past prior to 1990 are really hard to find because, I mean, he was just a he was just a, a middle class, middle to lower class citizen living his life, just bumping through day to day. And and prior to 1990, nothing happened. So I'm very proud of what I was able to dig up here because it took some deep digging into old newspaper archives. And this is all put together here. And this is going to be the first time you hear any of this information about Max prior to 1990. That was the first time I ever heard anybody call it archives. Though, Archi- right? Archives, which which is a delicious spice. Archives. Archives. It's vi- high in vitamin R. In 1965, at 19 years old, he joins the Job Corps in order to better himself. Now, the Job Corps was a common tool used by teenagers who come from impoverished neighborhoods or slums or ghettos or high school dropouts to get free job training, housing, and education. It was a way out, essentially, and there's kind of a, I don't know about now, but at the time in the, in the 60s, there was kind of a, the, the, the people that sign up for that aren't, aren't the cream of the crop, so to speak, um, but it was a way out. And because of his his uh, application for the job corps, he gets a job at Better Body Works in Schenectady as an auto body man. Mm, cream of the crop, too. You put a lot of archives on that cream of the crop over there. Yeah, he sure did. Thanks, guys. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. So he he's he's a, he's he's getting training as a body guy for vehicles, and uh, it's, it's said to have been a fantastic employee, a friendly guy, very funny. Melitzer does very well in the Job Corps and is eventually chosen to promote the program, the Job Corps program, at presentations across the country with four other students of the program. And this eventually lands him in Ogden, Utah by 1967, where he was attending a Job Corps program there and take and he's taking auto body classes. This is where Melitzer chooses to settle down, so is Roots here in Ogden, Utah, and he starts attending college at Weber State University. Now, meanwhile, his brother Morris is off in Vietnam fighting Charlie. He's he's listening to the trees talk. He's uh he's he's fighting Charlie. But in 1970, now I had to put all this together off of a million different articles. So uh, it it was a it was a lot, and I'm very proud of this this framework. And much of it doesn't even relate to the story. In 1970, <laughs> he was 24 years old and living at 661 27th Street in a nice little apartment and attending college at Weber State University. The only reason I was able to snag this little tidbit of information was because he reported a break-in at the Lutheran Church there next to his house on the night of Monday, September 21st, 1970, where the bandit stole a $27.40 microphone, just in case anybody was wondering. Yeah, I was wondering, like, what's it to steal at a Lutheran church? A child tied up in the basement? A $27 microphone and a child in the basement, yes. No disrespect to any of our Lutheran listeners. It wasn't a Catholic church, so there probably wasn't even any, ch- any children. <laughs> Is Lutheran Catholic? Yeah. Can we ask the operator about that? No. Lutheran is a Protestant religion started by Martin Luther, uh, and it's actually one of the original church's religions that were established off of a protest of the way that the Catholic Church was was doing religion. 
some of MLK's uh, most underrated work. <laughs> yeah, starting a Lutheran church, yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Just like Ted Bundy, they don't talk about that. <laughs> you know. Thank you, Ken. Uh, so <laughs> Keep speaking, keep preaching it. Still doing auto body work, Max is. Uh, uh, the next the next time he pops up in history is on June twenty second, nineteen seventy one. This is almost a year later. He has a bunch a bunch of stuff stolen out of his car while it's parked at his auto body job at sixteen hundred Wall Avenue. And that location, thanks to Google Maps, I have discovered is now ironically a key and locksmith joint. Huh. So, meanwhile, while this is happening, Max's brother Morris is now home from Vietnam in Skanapadidi. New York <laughs> and working the line at General Electric. So he he's working in a in a factory. He's also a train enthusiast, and that's uh, normal trains, metal trains, not the uh, not um, flesh fleshy flesh trains, not fleshy trains, just like the ones made of metal. Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Je- I think I do. <laughs> I'll Google it. So his brother's home from Vietnam. He's probably got some uh, patidsdi. Which is how you how you pronounce PTSD? Hmm, I didn't know that. And that's weird. <laughs> Maybe that's why it's not getting treated enough. Is we're not pronouncing it right when we go to the doctor. Yeah, he kept telling people, "I've got this patidsd," and they they didn't know what he was talking about. They could never get any help. Uh, so he he loves trains. Loves trains. That's his that's his passion in life. His trains. Max's brother Morris. Now on July thirteenth, nineteen seventy seven, the next time uh, Mister Max Malitzer shows up in history. He's still living at 661 27th Street. He is now 31 years old, and it's he shows up this time because he gets a toolbox stolen, as well as some tools and temperature gauge cinder. And the total of all these tools was $116 value. Um, uh, this guy keeps getting things stolen. Uh, no word yet as of if it was recovered. Can I clear something yeah. up, too? For the Schenectady audience that you're talking to, yeah, in Schenectady, a toolbox like that's what men call their wives. Oh, so you might wanna... <laughs> oh well, this is in Utah. This oh, is in okay, Utah. Sorry. I thought we were still back in Schenectady. <laughs> All right. Gosh. Uh, the next time he shows up is September 10th, 1977. So just a few months later, he has a hundred dollar stereo stolen from his home. So just bad luck this guy has. Apparently, Ogden. I don't know about now, but apparently at the time it was a bad place to live. It's often called the mean streets of Ogden. Is it really? <laughs> yeah. A lot of, um, lot of uh, Mormon bloods. Yeah, a lot of, there. Lot of Mormon <laughs> this gangs. This is really close to Salt Lake City. A lot of Mormon gangs. Several gangs only pay 8% tithing. It is rough. I mean, it is. It's in- <laughs> Isn't Salt Lake City like the, the Marja of Mormon? <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, Salt Lake City is where you go if you're not... Mormon. It's like the Denang for Mormons, yeah, right? Yeah, it, it like is. It's for Vietnam. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Okay, so at some point between 1977 and 1990, this is the point where you do, where Max falls out from the newspapers. At some point between 1977 and 1990, he meets a young lady by the name of Janice that he is absolutely smitten with. They fall in love and they have sex and Ugh. eventually become husband and wife. Wow. And they just love each other and they love doing things to each other and their That's bodies. Weird. They did it all backwards. And stuff. It's and they love that things. They love those things. Against the laws of nature. <laughs> By 1990, Max is living in Ogden. This is 1990 now. Max is 44 years old. He's living in Ogden, Utah still. And, and now he has a lovely wife, Janice. He has a job. Uh, he's an established auto body man making good money. He's got a, he's got a nice place to live. He's wanting to start a family, a great life, according to all who knew him. But, dun-dun-dun, Tuesday, July 10th, 1990. 
Max was driving his 1973 Volkswagen Super Beetle east of Rock Springs, Wyoming on Interstate 80 when he drifted off the road, overcorrected, and crashed. In the vehicle, there is nobody because they were all thrown from it. <laughs> and killed immediately. <laughs> Sorry. Hilarious. I didn't mean to be laughing through that punchline there, buddy. Oh. His wife, 44-year-old Janice Melitzer, was killed instantly. A family friend of theirs, 36-year-old Cindy Lee Jones, died on the way to the hospital. And another family friend of theirs, 36-year-old Glenn Kreitzberg, died the following morning. So Max was the only one to survive the wreck. Uh, they were all ejected from the vehicle. All of them were thrown off the vehicle. None of them were wearing seatbelts. And, and this sent Max into a spiraling depression. Janice was the love of his life. He was, she was what he lived for. And not long after the accident, Max loses his apartment and ends up homeless in Salt Lake City, Utah. And he's okay with that. He doesn't care. He just wants to die. The time is now 1996. Max has been homeless for six years now on the streets of Utah, Salt Lake City, uh, Mormon Denang, and... <laughs> It's at this point that actually Morris comes in to, to meet Max. Max's brother Morris comes into Salt Lake City and meets Max on a train platform to catch up. And Morris was on his way to Chicago from the West Coast. They hug for a minute. They exchange pleasantries for a few hours and then go their separate ways. That is the last time um, without either of them knowing that they will ever see each other. In 2004, Max and Morris's sister Beatrice passes away. This hurts Morris deeply, which is the brother that's doing okay. He, you know, this is the one that lives back in Shnanakdabadi. Hmm. Bunch of toolboxes back there. Yeah, in the toolbox. Yeah. But uh, Morris is very, very hurt by, by the sister passing, and Max isn't because he's eating uh, banana peels out of a garbage and doesn't even know it. So, hard, hard truth. October 2005. So, October 2005. A contractor is outside of Morris Militzer's house on Strong Street in Schenectady, New York, installing new sidewalks when he hits a gas line and literally blows the house to smithereens like a Looney Tune. There's pictures in the paper. It is like something out of a cartoon. It blew it into atoms while somehow simultaneously leaving the neighboring neighboring houses on each side completely unscathed. Wow. Uh, Morris had lived there for decades. Um, he was fortunately, though, down at the train station at the time of the explosion, watching the trains go by. This des- destroyed with his home was an irre- irreplaceable collection of train memorabilia that included old railroad timetables from the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, railroad dining car china, and a shelf after shelf of railroad books. On April 16, 2010, so five years after the house explosion, Morris Melitzer, who was Max's, the homeless man, Max's brother, passed away at Ellis Hospital after a long fight with pancreatic cancer. He was 66 years old. Now, meanwhile, back in Salt Lake City, Max is still homeless. He's been homeless at this point for 19 years. He's he's gotten used to not not having a place to lay his head down at night. And he's, uh, he has also been recently beaten up and robbed of what little he did own. But his, his brother Morris left a $100,000 inheritance that is now up for grabs. And Utah-based private investigator David, David Lundberg is hired to track down homeless Mac, Max Mullitzer in April of 2011. On June 18, 2011, after two months of searching, private investigator David Lundberg finally finds Max Mullitzer in a city park, pushing a shopping cart full of what little he had left, and 
It's always like a, a milk crate and a VHS player for some reason. <laughs> yeah, a dead cat. Don't even have electric. So uh, Lundberg finds Max homeless, but not homeless. Nineteen years. Max has been at this point. He takes Max out to a seafood joint where he bidges on his first bit of seafood in twenty years. While the investigator informs him of his inheritance back in New York, as well as his brother's passing, he didn't know of any of these things. He is in shock. When asked of his plans for the money, he says he wants to buy an RV and travel around seeing the United States. And that's odd. <laughs> when you're homeless, you're given $100,000. Like, that's what... But, hey, whatever. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll end this on a quote from David Lundberg, who, who was the private investigator. He said, quote, He'll no longer be living on the streets or in an abandoned storage shed, said the investigator. He's still in shock. This came out of nowhere. Our friend Max now has the money to set up a stable life for himself and get back on his feet. And and with that, I'll say hugs. Aw. Loved it. That was a... That was like... April 19th, oh. 2012. <laughs> Damn it. On April 9th, 2012. I'm sorry. Max is now in Albany, Albany New York. And I'll close with this. Do you remember the title of the story? Well, it was From Riches to Rags. And whenever I said that, you probably thought I was talking about him having everything and then losing it after the car wreck and and being poor. Uh, well, they checked up with him in April 9th, 2012. Uh, Max is now in Albany, New York. He did purchase a Cadillac with his inheritance, uh, but shortly after receiving it, it broke down and has been in the shop ever since. Uh, he now sleeps in under bridges and rotation in New York City. Uh, when he can be found, he's sleeping under a bridge. He collects bottles he finds on the streets, and uh, he loves stuffing his the pockets of his parka, the only one that he owns, uh, with those little cups of butter from Denny's. <laughs> it's, Hugs. It's a... <laughs> My question... Th- what. I thought where this whole story was going to go was um, that you were going to define more specifically which scale of model railroad uh, he was into. Did you know, was he into HO scale or was it the Z scale that he was? He wasn't into, Morris, Max's brother, wasn't into uh, model railroads. Yeah, but you mentioned somebody was, and I thought maybe you would specify, you know, HO is very common it's a, the lionel company you know they they did but the z scale is my personal favorite so i figured you would probably have come come across some information on the scale of the no trains no darn it well you know follow up with this next time uh or while we're taught while i'm telling my story google it and you can use it in the hug yeah drawer. i'll do that okay thanks can, can I can I cut in here real quick? I know that uh, uh, Kent has to go pick up his daughter. So I'm actually going to ask him. I'm going to text, tell her she's going to have to pick her up. Okay. Are you sure? Okay. I'm sorry. Okay. Do you want to do that now? Because if you can't, <clears throat> the, we could get you to answer the question first if you want. No, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. Let me text her. Okay. Okay. I've, I have to say I've enjoyed both of your stories this time. And not that I didn't enjoy them before, but both of them had like spit. Oh. Hey, I'm not going to be done recording in time. You're going to have to pick up. Yeah, I already assumed that. Okay, I love you so much. She's going to be mad. Yeah, I know. Hey, will you pick me up a pizza? No. Please? No. I'm f- swear. I'm fucking done. Yeah, you got that on yourself. Swear. 
All right. Well, I love you too. Okay. Bye, swears. I love her. Jack, um, is is it weird to you too? It's like listening to a BBC documentary of like a tribe they found in in like South America. Does BBC stand for Big Black? No, 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 no. It's British <laughs> Broadcasting Corporation. Wow. But to that point, Kent, actually, Jack, when 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 you hear two Kentuckians talk, is it like list like like the overdub that they have to do when two people from a tribe in South America are absolutely like you don't know it was is. it that bad? You're All like right. like how, do they know what each other's saying or is it just like they know by the number of swear words that are in the sentence if if this is a good conversation or a bad one? Sometimes we do end a sentence with yeah. <laughs> See, I knew it. I knew it. No, I could listen to your accent all day long. Yeah. She's going to be grouchy now because she has to get the baby ready and everything. Oh, dang it. I hope she brings me a pizza. She will. I don't you think that's not looking good. No, that didn't sound good. <laughs> all right. I, I really liked your stories. Both of them had a lot of texture. They kind of left me in a in a fun, funny spot at the end, and I enjoyed that. I, I really did. Not even just lying right now. I'm saying that for real. You can tell the off's being disingenuous when he repeats everything. Yeah, he doesn't. He also won't make eye contact with us while he's looking (laughs) off to the side. Yeah. I just, I've written down some compliments on sticky notes on the side of my monitor. And I just, you looked up and to the right, and I believe the camera's reversed, (laughs) which means that you technically looked up and to the left when you said that. If you know anything about body language, I'm so sorry, mine hunter. Oh, no, I love both of you and your stories. They're fun. Okay, so I do have a question for you. My question is, have you ever encountered something in the water? I'll take it first, Ken. All right, so, you know, there's uh, float Sam and there's uh, jet Sam. Float Sam is defined as debris in the water that was not deliberately thrown overboard, often as a result of a shipwreck or an accident. And jet Sam is a debris that was deliberately thrown overboard by a crew of a ship in distress, most often to lighten the ship's load. Are those are those related to flotsam and jetsam? <laughs> they, they, they could be. I don't know how you guys pronounce words where you're from, but that's how we say it when we're reading words for the first time here in Canada. So I believe that I walked into some freaking... Flotsam? Flotsam? Is that, is, is that how you yeah. say it? Uh, I have been mispronouncing that word my entire life, and everybody's so freaking intimidated by me that they won't tell me. I just love that all of these mispronunciations are coalescing on the show that we do while we're recording. This is amazing. (laughs) Yeah, it's great to figure out that you've been saying something stupid your whole life, and everybody else gets to hear it. You recognize it at the same time, eh, Ken? I'm just glad that I nailed Skeneka to the You sure did. You sure did. (laughs) You did. All right, so I'm swimming in a lake. Doing my little my little dog paddle, whatever. I actually I used to have a snorkel and I would go down and I would check out and you would find like old hippie stuff in this particular lake where I where I grew up. My my stepfather had a cottage that we would go visit, and uh, you'd find like peace on uh, peace signs made out of wood on leather chain links and stuff. It was kind of like, I was always out there searching for stuff. I'm down below for quite a while. I'm checking out this old stump that has a bunch of lures and and stuff stuck to it and picking them off. I come back up, and it's like I'm wearing a costume made of gloop. Like, what is this? Like, I'm trying to blow my snorkel out, right? <laughs> Nothing. Like, I had to take it out of my mouth, and I'm sucking air, and I'm covered with, like, a cape of leather. 
and I fight my way out of it, and there's like all this garbage. There's like fish flying around me, and I'm like, oh, the smell is horrendous. And I get out, and I turn around, and I look at it. It's all in my mouth, everything else. It was a dead moose. <laughs> a moose had died. It was floating on top of the water, and it had like decomposed all above me. And I had, I had swam so like 15 feet underneath the water toward, and came up into it. <laughs> Like I was in a teepee. What? In hell. What? Oh, That's gosh. <laughs> Kent? Kent, you got Yeah, I, actually, I wish that we had talked beforehand because it was a dead deer with me, oh, and I didn't swim wow. up into it. I was looking underneath this dock. I was swimming in the lake, and I, I saw something floating on the dock, under the dock, and I was like, what is that? I thought it was a log or something, so I reached in and pulled it out, and it was a dead deer, and it hit me in the throat. Ew. <laughs> so gross. So gross. <laughs> Wow. And I was just sitting there swimming in the dead deer milk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think I caught a disease from that, man. It's still going to catch me at some point, but I feel it creeping. It's been chasing me my whole life, whatever I sucked in there. And this is unrelated, kind of, but you said that you were dog paddling, and that's the only I, – I, whenever I, if you said imagine Jack swimming, for whatever reason, you're dog paddling. I'm not dog paddling. I'm a breaststroke guy. Ah, uh, you're a dog paddler. All right, fine. <laughs> you guys just leave your sexual proclivities at the door next time. I don't want to know about this stuff. Yeah, says the guy talking about BBC. That's a British <laughs> Broadcast Corporation. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that we had trains in this episode because it's really gone off the rails, Hugs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so mine, throwback to Ted Bundy, mine was actually at Lake Sammamish in Issaquah, Washington. No way. Awesome. I had just learned how to swim out to the dock, and they had these little tiny square, like 12-foot by 12-foot floating docks out past the, you know, safety buoys for the kids. You know, there's like the line of safety, don't go past here. And then it was the deep end, and then there were the docks at the back of the deep end. And then it was so weird. Beyond the dock, like the temperature of the water changed. It took like colder. It like it, it was a drop off there, and you didn't know it until you swam out into it. And it was such an uncomfortable feeling to just hit that cold water, and you're like, "This doesn't feel right." So I'm swimming out. I pass the buoys. I'm swimming through the deep end. I was a kid, but I would have to guess it might have been like 40 feet out to the 12 by 12 dock. And suddenly, I like kind of do my doggy paddle push. But my feet just stand up on something. And I was up out of the water, like below my, right, that, the areola region. I was, I was, they were drying off yeah. suddenly. So suddenly I'm just wafting in the wind, nipples exposed, and I'm literally standing up on something. But as I'm standing up, I start to sink a little bit. And mentally, I was like eight or nine. And so I was mm. tired and panicking. You know, I'm trying to make it to the dock and I don't know how to swim that well. So this is all an adventure. So initially when I'm, I find footing on something, I'm like, oh, okay, I could take a breath. But then I'm like, hang on, what am I standing on? And it freaked me out and it was very unstable. And I just started to sink slowly, which tells you how big the object I was standing on was that it didn't just react immediately to my foot pressure. It reacted very slowly and I started to sink Ugh. and I was freaked out. But, but my pushing on that object brought it to the surface. I freaked out. I swam faster than ever. I made it to the 12 foot dock and I look back about 10 feet where I had hit this thing. It turned out to be the news showed up. They took pictures. It made the evening news. 
21 foot dead sturgeon. 21 feet. Wow. And it, so I pushed on it and it made its way to the surface and then it just kind of wobbled, you know, bobbed back and forth on the surface. And some teenagers saw it and realized it was dead. So they ended up dragging it back to shore. Oh my gosh, though, that my feet touched it. It changed my life as far as my interaction with lakes. You don't know what's down there. <laughs> no. You don't. You think because it's I a lake lakes. that, you know, the, the, the creatures within a lake might be more benign. It's not the ocean. You know, we don't have great white sharks in the, or anything. But holy cow, I've been in some bait shops near lakes, large lakes. And the, the <laughs> teeth on some of those, those fish that come out of the lakes, you're like, no, thank you. Like if you're talking about like, like small lakes, like what I was talking about, fine, whatever, right? But the great lakes, like Lake Ontario, Lake Superior, uh, well, they're terrifying. Those lakes are so. There, there, there was sorry, real quick. There was there was like I think it was five kids. I'll talk about it on an upcoming episode. Who went out and they stole a bunch of like little stupid boats and they went out on Lake Ontario, and it was on St. Patrick's Day. I remember when I was a kid. I was like sixteen. It's called the Lost Boys of Pickering. Really, and they never found them. Yeah, those Ooh. Great Lakes. They, uh, they they actually respond like oceans. They're so vast. <laughs> Uh, that they they do they respond yeah. just like ocean oceanic they have currents like oceans and I don't think uh, I think I've said this before but I don't like getting in water that I can't see what is below me I uh, and, and I ever I think it was because I remember when I was little reading about giant squids yeah and that is the most horrifying yeah. thing imaginable to me a giant squid that and a and a goblin shark ooh those are terrible looking yeah. So does that include bubble baths? Because technically the bottom of the tub is occluded by the <laughs> bubbles. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't mind bubble baths. Oh, but that's weird. So there is, there are some. <laughs> I figured look you, like you do. <laughs> figured there might be some exceptions to that rule, but I was just wanting to clarify. <laughs> All right, here's my jo- here's my joke. Here's my story. Bert Hobson was banking on the tiger shark being a major money maker. It was 1935, and business had been terrible recently, as the owner of Coogee Aquarium and Swimming Baths, which is an odd mixture of two things. That's like going to a place where you can get Army, Navy apparel, and lingerie. But he owned a business where it was an aquarium and a swimming bath. Hopefully they weren't combined. He renamed it for uh, business purposes to the Coogee Pavilion. Bert had seen business drop dramatically after the previous year's demolition of the Coogee Pier, which was right near the doors of the swimming baths. With its 1,400-seat theater, large ballroom, which sounds totally super fun to me. A large ballroom? That sounds amazing. It would sound amazing to you. And outside a restaurant and penny arcade, uh, which sounds like a waste of pennies, was suddenly no longer attracting visitors, though. Once, it was a thriving hotspot. By the mid-1930s, Coogee Beach was no longer drawing the same steady stream of patrons because the pier was gone. So when he and his son Ron caught a 13-foot, one-ton tiger shark just three miles offshore, Bert quickly organized to have it transported to the aquarium, deciding to charge people to marvel at the creature. The plan worked relatively well for a week. Then Anzac Day came... That's a national holiday in Australia. So the baths were filled with inquisitive families, keen to see this mighty beast in all its glory. 
crowds flooded in and out through the day. Then at 4.30 p.m., the shark took a turn. It started violently convulsing, vomited up a rat, then a bird, then, as its pièce de résistance, a human arm. The crowd recoiled, and Bert quickly called the police who fished the limb out of the water, and the magnitude of what had happened began to set in. It was a left arm sporting a prominent tattoo on the inside forearm of two boxers sparring. A rope was attached to the wrist, and the police soon discovered that the arm had not been bitten off, as presumed, but had been cut off. This wasn't a shark attack. It was a murder mystery. So the distinctive tattoo quickly led police to the arm's owner. Jimmy Smith, age 45, an England-born boxer who lived in a town called Gladesville, the local newspaper characterized him as, quote, former pool shark, a well-known suburban billiards saloon keeper, one-time promising lightweight boxer, and a man with seemingly not an enemy in the world, taking care to stress numerous times that, quote, Jimmy was no coward. It took little to convince the police that he was not the sort of man who would end his life by suicide, surmising that it must have been murder. What the papers failed to mention was that Smith had begun to interact with known criminals while managing his billiards saloon, though. He started working as a builder in the early 30s and was employed to construct a block of apartments for a major Australian crime figure named Reginald Holmes. And he soon began to work various jobs for Holmes, not all of them on the books. Reginald Holmes was part of a long lineage of boat builders, seamen, if you will, Spanning from the 1850s, his father and grandfather were both successful boat builders, and Reginald had followed suit, operating a thriving business building speedboats. His most lucrative operations, however, were of the less-than-legal kind. He used his speedboats to coordinate cocaine drops, which is the drugs, from passing ships from port to port, which he would then sell in the city. He also worked insurance scams, including one where he and a few other consorts bought overinsured, and sank a pleasure cruiser named the Pathfinder. Jimmy Smith was in on all of these schemes. He often ran the speedboats, put out the locations for the drug pickups, and was the caretaker of the Pathfinder. Soon, the pair teamed up with Patrick Brady, an ex-serviceman who'd been convicted of forgery. They began to forge checks from Holmes' wealthy clients for tiny amounts that wouldn't be noticed using both Holmes's and Smith's businesses to cash them. Smith and Holmes soon fell out over one of these scams, and Smith started to blackmail Holmes. Knowing his respectable standing in town made him an easy target, he thought. Smith knew that Holmes had a lot to lose. What he didn't realize was this very fact put his life in danger. Jimmy Smith spent his final night alive drinking with Patrick Brady, it was a Sunday night, April 7th, and the pair were playing a noisy game of cards at the Cecil Hotel in town. Oh. They moved in. I know, right? Different hotel. Oh, I, I, this story was interesting <laughs> for a second. Like 3,500 miles away. <laughs> never mind. Yeah, never mind. Now it's boring again. <laughs> um, they, mo- they soon moved on to a small cottage that Brady had rented less than two miles from the hotel. This is where it's believed Smith was murdered. Brady was a master forger, but a sloppy murderer. Given the public nature of their evening out, it was quite simple for the police to trace Smith's final movements and connect him to Brady. 
It was revealed that late that same night, Brady caught a taxi from the house directly to the home of Holmes. The taxi driver identified Brady, named the exact two addresses, and described the passenger as disheveled and clearly hiding something under his jacket. He said it was clear that he was frightened. Just three weeks after the tiger shark regurgitated Jimmy Smith's arm, Patrick Brady was arrested for his murder. There was only one problem. Without a body, a single arm is not proof that a murder has taken place. But once arrested, it didn't take long for Brady to point the finger. That same day, police turned up at Holmes' boat shed down at the docks and questioned him. Holmes denied that he'd ever met Brady, but the murder clearly weighed heavily on his mind. Four days later, early on the Monday morning, Holmes took a brandy bottle and a pistol and headed out on a speedboat. He got extremely drunk and shot himself in the head. Miraculously, though, the bullet hit the bone on his forehead and the force simply blasted him backward into the water, knocking him out. So as he regained consciousness, he scrambled back into the speedboat and set off toward Sydney Harbor. He drove erratically around, disrupting morning ferry services and hammering around the harbor for close to four hours. Two water police, which sounds like a kind of Marvel superhero character, but two water police chased him, and he let, and he led them two miles out to sea, stopped the boat, and surrendered. To hear Reginald Holmes tell it, he was a victim of extortion. He told the detectives that Patrick Brady turned up at his house late one night holding Smith's severed arm. He threatened to blackmail Holmes if he didn't pay him 500 bucks. He explained to Holmes how he had killed Smith, dismembered his body, and placed the parts in a trunk which was tossed into the bay. Such an ocean burial was referred to as a Sydney send-off in crime circles in the 20s and 30s. The vast uncharted ocean and its many access points being the best means of disposal for a body. The left arm, with its distinctive boxing tattoo, was kept so that there was no mistaking the victim. Holmes gave Brady the money and he left, leaving the arm in Reginald's living room. Panicked, Holmes drove to another town under the cloak of darkness, tossed the arm into the ocean. A small shark then ate the arm and was in turn eaten by a giant tiger shark. So the arm was now part of the most intense macabre or macabre, as Kent might say. Oh, take it easy. Russian doll you can think of. <laughs> Taking a beat in this episode. <laughs> How would you say it, Kent? <laughs> <I> would... <laughs> How did you pronounce it there, uh Macabre? That's how I would pronounce it. (laughs) That's what I thought. So nine days after the murder, Bert and Ron plucked this giant shark from the ocean, put it on display, and the perfect crime began to unravel. After explaining all this to the police, Holmes agreed to be a witness at the inquest into Jimmy Smith's death, which was to be held still. But the morning the inquest was to begin, Reginald Holmes was found dead in his own car, three bullets in his chest. He was parked under the harbor bridge, and it had been speculated that Holmes himself ordered the hitman to take him out. A bizarre and violent suicidal act. It's more likely, though, that Brady ordered the murder, although other business associates were also accused of the murder over the coming months. Nevertheless, without Holmes as the star witness, the case against Brady soon fell apart and no conviction was ever recorded. Brady walked free. Nobody was ever charged over the deaths until his death in 1965 at age 76. 
Patrick Brady denied he'd anything to do with either. Jimmy Smith was later discovered to have been a police informant. His body has still never been found. And in the end, the shark became famous. A shark you might have heard of. The famous shark we've grown to know for decades now. The shark named Willis. Never heard of Willis. I've never heard of Willis either. I told you guys I was going to try to write my own twist ending. Yeah, this was... You might want to quote your source on this one. Sorry, I added the last line <laughs> thinking I'd throw you off completely. But really, this was about a murder. Who is Willis? <laughs> oh. hey, listen, I covered this story. You did? Uh, no, not on Dark Topic, though, so you could be forgiven for this. Oh, not that you need to forgive, be forgiven at all. But myself and Leroy uh, from Excuse Me, That's Illegal, we covered this, and you did a better job than we did. <laughs> it's, I remember Dang getting it. into it. And being like, oh, the shark arm, right? Like somebody's, like the shark regurgitated this arm. This yeah. is going to be easy. This is going to be a quick thing. But then when you start getting into the, the minutiae, like all the details and stuff, it's like, oh my God. <laughs> this is a murder mystery. Yeah. It's like scratching a scab and finding <laughs> cancer. <laughs> exactly. Totally. Well, no, I, I thought that was a fun story, so I thought I'd share it. You said a you shark a that job. we all know, and yeah. I literally, the second you said that, started racking my brain. I was like, I don't know any sharks. I, don't. I thought it was the, the original Jaws, right? That whatever was an animatronic. Had... <laughs> so that... No, 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 no. But whatever had provoked all the fear oh, about Jaws, yeah. right? Like... I, was, I was actually in New Jersey, that shark. but They killed that shark, too. There is a, I believe it's a Wondery series on... Uh, on the podcast about Jaws, about the movie and everything, and that actually the fear of sharks was really pronounced uh, by some bull sharks that figured out how to swim in freshwater, started swimming up like the Hudson Bay and made their way into New Jersey and started killing people in the water. Yeah. So that's kind of what started the Jaws thing. But yeah, this was also a bull shark named Willis. Just kidding. I made that part all up. It was supposed to end with his body has never been <laughs> Isn't found. Isn't there supposed to be an actual uh, unidentified murder victim in Jaws too in one of the background scenes? Yes. It's the um, – yes, yes, yes. It's the, the, the woman of the dunes. Um, her arms were cut off, and she was. They thought that she was um, sun tanning for days, and um, she's she in the movie. She had been murdered and stuffed into the dirt. There, there, you can see and her in the movie. Well, she she was alive then. Yes. Well, you know who figured Whoa. it out was Stephen King's son. Really? I believe um, Rodney King, Joe Hill. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> the Lady of the Dunes. Look huh. look up the Lady of the Dunes. I can't grab it off the top of my head right now, but look up the Lady of the Dunes. There is a scene where they think that she had come from around the area to be an extra, and they think that they saw her, and they ended up finding a body, and she's connected to a, to a serial killer. This is why I know about this, and I think it might be Rodney Alcala. Yeah, the dating game. Um, uh. Yeah, but I'm not I'm not I'm not a hundred on that. But look up Lady of the Dunes if you want to learn more about what Kent just brought up. Wow, that's cool. Uh have you seen the um person hang themselves in the forest on the wizard of oz yeah yeah the 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 shadow swings by. yeah there's also creepy. supposedly a creepy. ghost boy in a background scene of three men and a baby yeah in the yeah. curtain really that's it's creepy. really creepy that, that one if you uh, see that scene it is weird earlier when i was talking about ted bundy in that mall that mall is like the Northgate Mall, I think it's called in Seattle, and it's apparently haunted as well. And they think that Ted Bundy might be haunting it, but it's a bunch of BS. But they see like uh, security guards that claim that they see children 
just shadow children running around at night. And it's it's right next to a hospital where that that mall was. I think it might have been torn down since, but there was there was uh, there was a ghostly element to that whole uh, story. I've been to the Northgate Mall many times as a yep. kid, and they had this to kill women. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they had the wildest play plaything in there. It was a giant tugboat, but the thing was made out of like foam and then they painted it shiny with like this shiny like rubberized paint but the whole thing was like different colors and everything and it was really cool until some idiot kids realized that you could bite into the foam and tear pieces of it off so over the course of like two years this boat literally looked like it had been sent out as a ghost ship and was just eaten by children and they had to end up taking it down because it was like a health risk because (laughs) <laughs> it had so many bite marks, just big chunks taken out of it. Like You need me as a lifeguard because I'm a hero, just giving the Heimlichs to kids with foam in their throats. Yeah, right. You got to put razor blades in that little boat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That solved the problem real quick. I don't think they wanted to save the children that were eating the boat. Those kids probably, I don't know. I don't think they graduated high school after that. <laughs> good story, Op. Thanks, thanks. Uh, yeah, and, Not yeah. his favorite, but good. Jack, I'm stuck. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, on a scale of 9 to 10, can't, you're giving it a 9. Okay, fine. <laughs> it's a tough spot up. It's a tough it spot is. to come after the first two because everyone's a little worn out and your stories tend to be a little more in-depth. Yeah, it's yeah. hard being the closer. Mm-hmm, it's hard being the closer. Yeah. Most of what I'm pissed off about is halfway through this, and you guys can't hear this, but they are putting insulation into the attic of my house. <laughs> sure, they are. Here. sure they are. Why right, is kid? there all... Sure they are. Jack. <laughs> bees, people mowing, trains, ladies dying of cancer. You've got an Asian neighbor with a loud dog. Do you live in... It's uh, not anymore. <laughs> oh, snap. You killed the Asian neighbor? <laughs> oh, jeez. And Jack. it's loud dog. Oh, you can't say that. You could kill I'm the sorry. neighbor. You can't touch the dog. Oh, hey, how about a hug drawer? Anybody got anything for the hug drawer? Uh, I do. Um, it's the game of chess. Oh, you guys ever well, heard of chess? You sure have. I've always been a checkers man myself. <laughs> no, tell us more, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> well, I bought a, I think it was a $75 chess set for my son for Christmas, and we just, it just sat there like I knew it would. But then about a week ago, me and my girl started playing it, and then he played, and then my uh, father-in-law's visited, and he played against uh, my girl, and we, we we suddenly are like super into chess because it's funny because you think you need to be an intelligent person to play chess, you just need to like just play, yeah, and it's it's fun because like you're so both so stupid, <laughs> like like oh my god I just put that bishop right right there. <laughs> Right there. Oh, that horse, he could go and eat up my bishop? Oh, cool. Did I not need that thing? Did that pawn just go walking all the way across the board and checkmate the freaking king? Like, how did that happen? So, like, I think chess is more fun when you're stupid. Yeah. And I've been playing a lot of it. That's how I've lived my life. Everything is more fun when you're stupid, like trying to pronounce Connecticut. Oh, I drowned it. Yeah, man. Or macabre, which is a Mexican word. That's it. Uh, chess. All right. That's that's what I love chess personally. You know, I found that the more you play chess, the more for some reason the machinations that your brain goes through to to play chess, yeah. they end up showing up in your daily life. Like you start you start kind of 
making your decisions based on it's like it's like the patterns that chess follows seem to also be uh, transferred to the patterns you can use to make daily choices. It's it's really weird. That's what they say. Yeah, you don't come That's across a lot they... of horses or you know bishops. No. Stuff like that. No, but you're right. I mean, if you play checkers, like my son wanted to play checkers, and we're like, hey, let's check out chess. We play chess. And and he was instantly hooked. He's like, oh, this thing, like a horse. I explained to him the night, like the horse. Uh-huh. Is it is that right? Yeah. It like kind of like comes running in, you know, it does an L shape. Uh-huh. It runs in and it veers up. Right. That's how I see that horse. It comes kind of comes galloping in and then it veers up to the right or the left. And uh, once he started seeing that kind of thing in it, you know, he was like, oh, you know, it's kind of like a battle. He's like, this is kind of like a war. I'm like, it is exactly like a war. It is a war. And the only people that can't go backwards are the pawns. It's like, nope, you're, yeah. you're conscripted. <laughs> you keep moving forward, suckers. Yeah. And I've been exactly. the pawn. I never learned how to play chess. I always played checkers and crock barrel which is just dot chess. <laughs> Dark You're missing out. Chess. You're missing out. Just play it. Even though you can't play it, I can't play it either. It's so much fun when you play against... You should play it against your girl. You guys sound like you'd have a hell of a battle. It just seems like so much to learn. Like, they all do their own thing, and it's like, I've got... Yeah. Record it. ...things to do. I would pay to see you and your girl play a game of chess for the first <laughs> She'd time. She'd end up hitting me. It's actually pretty fun. Once... It, it, you know, it's maybe a half hour of figuring out what the pieces do. And all said, there's a lot of pieces on the board, but all said, there's like five individual pieces. Your king, queen, castle, horse, bishop. Yeah, but then you got to buy the little clock with the buttons. <laughs> you don't got to do that. You just punch you each other in the head. A, uh, you have to buy a bowler hat. I just... You don't have to be Isaac Asimov to play. No. Wait, is that a, he's an author? Never mind. Maybe he played right. chess. I don't know. Who knows? Mm. Nicholas Tesla. Yeah, Kent. What's your hug drawer item? It's a movie that's called um, "Come to Daddy." Okay, moving oh, on. Oh no, 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 no! I, no you really reached into the back of the hug drawer for that one, and that, on, that that's yeah, not so what anyway. it sounds like. It's spelled C O M E. Oh, that's a weird na- way to spell Daddy. But, um, come but, to Daddy. Is a movie starring Elijah Wood of Lord of the Rings fame, and uh-huh. and um, the Good Son fame. I don't know if you guys remember that one with Macaulay Culkin. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah yeah. Where Macaulay Culkin's a bad little boy and he's evil. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Creepy. And nobody believes Elijah Wood that he's bad. Anyways, uh, ironic because the title says Good Son, but he's not. It's a, it's a movie. Good Come to Daddy. Spelled C O M E. Okay, is is a horror movie, and you can find that on Amazon Prime right now, and it's really good. It's odd. It's I would call it a okay. horror comedy. H O R R O R. Hormody. A horror comedy. Comma horror. D. Yeah, and I think that's what it's it is. just. Uh, if you like horror comedies, um, it's a good one. On a scale, on a scale of zero to Psycho Gorman, it is no Psycho Gorman. I'm not gonna lie. Um, I put Psycho Gorman okay. at ten for horror comedies. I love that yeah. movie, and you do too, Up. And I think Jack would if he'd watch it. I do. Oh, it's so I'll good. Do anything you guys say, <laughs> Psycho Gorman. People, we're pulling that one in the hug drawer on this episode as well. You got to watch, watch, watch. Come to Daddy. Make sure you Google it properly, and then yeah. watch. Psycho Gorman. That thing's amazing. It is. So, okay, I got a weird one, kind of a curveball for my hug drawer. It's a phone app 
called photomath, as in mathematics, photomath. This thing will change your world if you're a parent. It can also become a dangerous tool if your children get a hold of it because they will get A's in every math class they're ever in. But here's what's amazing. I tried it. So I saw somebody said, hey, you should check out Photomath. What it is, it's a camera, basically. You take a picture of a math problem and it solves it for you. Not only solves it for you and gives you the answer, but there's buttons to say, show your work. And it shows you all the work. And then it breaks down the work into categories where you click on each step of the work and it shows you either a video, if you want to watch a video of how that work came to be, or textual answers on. So basically, it's an, it, it, it is an education tool. It's not just a cheating tool. No, it's, it's a cheating tool. <laughs> Okay, but in the hands of a parent, I don't know. Has this ever happened? You know why to you? there's a show your, your work comes- option up? Because that's required <laughs> on almost all homework now. <laughs> I know, but that's what I'm saying. Don't give it to your kids, but you as a parent, how, you guys have to have experienced that, right? Where your kid comes home and they're like, hey, "Can you help me with my math homework?" You're like, "Sure, son," or "Sure, daughter," and then you instantly don't know how to do the math they're doing. This is your answer. Because take a picture, you get the answer. Then you can instruct your child through the process of how they get to showing their work. It's brilliant. It's changed my life as far as helping my son with his math. And I can continue to be a podcaster rather than becoming an adjunct professor in mathematics. So None of this was ever a problem until they introduced that garbage common core and changed math as we know it. Made it 10 times worse than it was already. But you guys both brought up an interesting point when we were talking about photo math before we started, right? Uh, I mean, I bring up a lot of interesting points. What was the... <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about... Kent, you you in particular, you said, you said, how much longer are we even going to have to worry about having to yeah, know math, yeah. right? I mean, we're in an age of technology, right? Where Oh, right. Because eventually we're going to have... Now. yeah. Contact lens implants where you can look at something and there's a connection made to your brain where you just Oh. Elon's yeah. gonna make it happen. But the thing I think the thing we we're kinda of talking about was like if you went back in the past and if you were like, Hey guys, there's TVs and there's cell phones and there's, you know, yeah. these towers and stuff and you would never be able to explain it and the opposite something interest where it was like, Well, if you handed that the dumbest person on earth with the um, catalog of stuff that they have in their minds about the, their experience right now. If you send them back, they might be able to give a guy like Tesla enough to get the jump on things. Yeah. I think Kent said that. He's like, what would the future look like now if you had gone back and just handed Tesla a cell phone yeah. and said, that's all I can do, but I can explain, you know, it works off of towers, blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah, a normal lay person's understanding of how cell phones work, handed to Tesla Yes. Right, Kent? And I'm telling your story for you, but... I just think it would be interesting, and like he was, like Jack was talking... Send Kent back. <laughs> just send the dumbest... I don't even know what's going on right now. I'm still thinking about Ops Nipples. <laughs> I don't... <laughs> <laughs> Me too. So, you know, join the club. Uh, no, but I do think that it's, uh, math... As I see it from from a you know the thirty thousand foot view, math is still one of those subjects where the way we get most kids through it is through guilt. You know, we're like, you need to know this. 
you need to, and even as a parent, I know that I use one, I don't know, one fiftieth of the math that I learned, but I still guilt my kids into, it's almost like a fear thing. It's like math is, is part of a curriculum because everybody needs to know this stuff, dang it, but we don't. So to your point, uh, there are things that are sloughing off in our educational system that just aren't seen as relevant anymore. Um, cursive has gone the way of the dodo bird, it, the dinosaur. It, it's no longer pressed. And I wouldn't be surprised if at some point there's a kind of a, a whole paradigm shift with education that says, hey, let's leverage technology. If, if I can use photomath and answer a math problem and it shows me how I got there and I can educate myself from that point rather than, you know, some memorization for cramming for a test that I'm just going to forget. It seems mm -hmm. like that's something I should have in my pocket for the rest of my life, as opposed to what I forgot in the, you know, ninth grade that I'm, that I, maybe I should, could use again, but I forgot and I fear math. So I'm not going to do it anymore. Yes. I hope that an evolution is coming in education. I hear everything you're saying. I, I think the education, for the most part, and a lot of people don't want to admit this, but like 60% of it is just a daycare. It's true. It's just a spot where it's like, hey, just teach my kids some stuff that's not as bad as them eating dirt in the backyard or getting... Yeah. We learned that through COVID, right? I mean, yeah. bl bless teachers' hearts, but we learned that it doesn't necessarily need to be a full day event like they can get right. the the preponderance of their homework done in two hours as opposed to you know we've learned six. that too with with what happened right with the COVID yeah. situation I remember with, with my son I'm sure you guys felt the same way it's like oh I bang this stuff out in an hour but what they're missing is the social yeah, aspect the social. school is so important for that yep. mm -hmm. that's very important and the instructional part right I mean I am no good I'm not a great teacher so I don't spend as much time as a devoted teacher does in imbuing that knowledge to get the answers to the homework that I'm helping him just pump out me my son and YouTube you know so, yeah, but I do think there's an evolution. I always kind of, in my mind, I always picture like, um, what's the, oh, okay. You guys are going to kill me because I can't remember the name of this movie, but can't in particular, you probably do. Okay. Really, really, uh, famous scene. I believe it was like Maria Jojovich or Mila something Djokovic. like that. Orange, Jokovic, orange hair. Yeah, that's fifth element. And Bruce she's Willis. wearing... Fifth Element, yes. So floating cars. Get out of here. Sorry, man. How are you saying Fifth Element right now? I watched, I watched the ninth, the ninth Gate last night, and I was saying to my father-in-law, "I'm like, I always thought this was the Fifth Element. Does the Fifth Element have yes. uh, Bruce Willis in it?" Yeah, yeah. We were Bruce just talking Willis about this. And Chris wow. Rock. Are not Chris Rock? I was, I'm sorry, I was Chris Tucker. With this. I was like, I don't. Wow. I was saying I don't want to watch the Fifth Element. I don't care about Bruce Willis. And he was like, No, no, it's Johnny Depp. Like it's kind of, it's kind of like it's about books, and you know, you like books, right? I was like, yeah, I guess. And then we watched the ninth, the ninth gate, which was great. But it was. Sorry, it's amazing you guys just said that movie because we were really going on about it last night. Yeah, but I, I think that that, I think that 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 kind of environment, you know, tablet in our hands, all the information at our fingertips. Everybody's everybody. It's like a level playing field. There isn't like slow internet and fast internet. You know, everything is is accessible, which I guess I'm defining the internet, but at the same time, but that socially it's acceptable to just have all this at our fingertips and we're not finger-wagging children for not learning. I would much rather teach my children how to find information as opposed to how to pull out trigonometry from their brain that they never used for a decade and then suddenly they've got one reason to use it at some point, you know, 
I don't know. I'd much rather have a K through 12 education on how to find all the information that's out there now. You know, how to how to do research, how to get to come to a conclusion. Yeah, I think it speeds things up. Like tools like what you're talking about right there. I think, yeah. you know, people will say like it's I don't know if this is exactly what you're saying, but when the calculator first came in they're like, "Oh, that's cheating." It's like, right. "No, I think that it's uh it speeds things up." It does. It speeds things up. And you get rid of things that that are more or less unnecessary like cursive. It's it's beautiful and it stretches your brain just like a foreign language class. Yeah. So there are is utility behind them, but if we're talking about, you know, trimming this educational system into something that uh, that just becomes useful and that we can get get closer to oh this child's skill set or aptitude is this as opposed to yes you know burning through 7 years of education and everybody seems stupid at math you know that's that's the checkbox we're looking for or where are the good math leads <laughs> you know it's funny cuz you're talking about something that a lot of people um it's it's a reality now when it comes to private education if you want to pay like $50,000 a year for your kids private education you can get those teachers to kind of hone in on what you think that their skill set yes. is apparently. apparently i've looked into it slightly i'm never going to do it no well and then you've got the the extreme example of that's how the whole chinese educational system works is from a very young age your aptitudes are determined and then you're set on a track, which I think when it comes to like vocational education, those types of things, rather than slamming a kid for being slow in math, if he's good mechanically, you know, nurture that or what. Anyway, how did I get off on this? Is this even relevant? I Am I going to have to cut out? One day he could work at the Wuhan uh, Institute for the coronavirus or whatever, right? If, if he really tries hard. Is that actually is that a place? Kent, are you alive? Kent, yeah, are you I'm frozen? Good. <laughs> <laughs> He was so frozen. That was amazing. He's just probably thinking about cheeseburgers. I just wish they'd teach us how to file taxes. There you go. Oh, absolutely. File totally, taxes. Man. Yeah. For the love of God. Set up a bank account. How, how, to, do, I, how, to, how do I yeah. go to Come the on. DMV and get my license renewed? I learned how to file my taxes with a Russian lady at a place where I paid like $75. She was like, you have not the first clue how to do this. I was like, no. And I gave her some weed under the table. I dropped it underneath the table before I left. I was like, thank you. For teaching me a little bit about how to save like an extra hundred and whatever fifty dollars on my taxes. <laughs> Why aren't they teaching that? Why aren't they? Know. Yeah, taxes or how to set up a business. Math is a scary. Is a is like a bugaboo, right? So is entrepreneurialism. It's it's seen as not mainstream. It's seen as too risky. All these things. But if kids knew how to start. I literally started another business the other day for somebody on my computer. They gave me the information they needed. I'm like, taka, 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 $75 later, new LLC set up on, you know, it with the state. It's, it, people should know these I sort of think it would be a bad idea to teach a general laws class so that people understand the rights. Exactly. I know. Well, you trigger some people. Let's be honest. This, this is a large conversation we're trying to get into at the very end of a yeah. podcast. I got a piss like a racehorse. Do you know where that saying came from? Where piss like a racehorse? Because the racehorses pee, pee like crazy. Like crazy? Yeah, it sounds like a, somebody dumping a bucket of water. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a fire hydrant got broken. Is that where it comes from? Just basically, yeah. it's really just a racehorse peeing? It's a lot of pee. Huh. Yeah. That's some interesting <sighs> etymology there. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, well, I have nothing left. Photomath. Uh, come to daddy, make sure you spell it right, and the game yeah. of chess. And you can always tell right. and how big a man's urethra is by how much of a splash the urine makes and how bellowy it's like. Like if it sounds like a water gun, just then he's probably got a narrow urethra. Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, and I'm glad that I said that, and I don't and, regret uh, it. 
And I'm glad yeah, you did I'll too, because if, if you spend a little time in that world listening to the pitter-patter of men's urine hit the toilet, it is kind of has an ASMR effect. Another thing we should mm-hmm. be teaching in schools, if I'm not mistaken, correct, guys? Right. Anyway, well, I feel like we've uh, clogged up the airwaves, so let's uh, unclog them. And we'll end this. So this is where you stop listening to the show. Hugs, everybody. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>